Please remain standing in honor of God's Word. We're continuing on in the book of Acts, and this morning we'll look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint for this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Percorsus, and Nicantor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, proselytes of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, I pray for your strength in delivering your word. Father, we have a great enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Enlighten us through Your Word to see his schemes, to see how he works so that we will not be caught off guard, so that he will not outwit us, so that we can stand against him and be victorious and see Your church be built, see the ministry go forth, and to see many come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So, Father, send Your Spirit so that this can be a reality in our midst. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. may be seated. In 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said, We are not outwitted by Satan because we are not unaware of his schemes. And specifically, In that context, he was talking about having an unforgiving spirit. Uh, Satan would love to use bitterness and unforgiveness to divide the people of God. But of course, Satan has many schemes, many strategies. And he comes at the church from many different angles. And we need to be aware of his strategy so that we are not caught off guard, so that we can, as I prayed, stand against him. That's very important. And in the last few weeks, we've been looking at a number of his strategies. Uh, First of all, we saw that one of his strategies was physical persecution. He threw the apostles in prison. He had them beaten, flogged in the hopes that they would be quiet. But the apostles went back to the church. They gathered together in prayer. and Specifically, they asked for boldness. And God answered that prayer. He shook the church, filled them with the Spirit, so that they could indeed continue on boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. Now, while physical persecution is one level, we could also talk about political persecution. Maybe it's not physical, but it's political. Uh, Many of you, I know, pay attention to the news, and perhaps some of you have heard about Chick-fil-A and how that company has been under fire 
uh, because Truett Caffey and his sons, who started that business uh, back in 67, said, we want to honor God with our business. We want to provide a good service, but we want to make money. Uh, but we don't want to make so much money that we have to work seven days a week, so we're going to close on Sunday to honor the Sabbath so that our employees can go to church. They don't have to go to church. We're not demanding that they go to church. But if they would like to go to church, we want to make that available. And we're going to close on Sunday and trust that God will bless our business by working six days a week and not seven. And just recently, the Caffeys have affirmed traditional marriage. They had the audacity to say that they believe that marriage should be between a man and a woman. And people are outraged that they would say such a thing. And they are coming under attack from many different angles. And even the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, said that the Chick-fil-A philosophy is not welcome in Chicago. That's political pressure. That's political persecution. There's also just plain peer pressure. That's another kind of persecution uh, where you just come against your peers and you mock them for their beliefs and you talk about how judgmental they are or how intolerant they are to hold such views. Well, have you noticed this? Have you noticed that those who talk about tolerance seem to be so intolerant? Have you noticed that? It's quite ironic that those who want to talk about we've got to have tolerance, we have to have acceptance, and we say, Okay, that's great. Will you accept my views? Absolutely not. Wait, what happened to all the tolerance? Let's, let's not be fooled. When they talk about tolerance, what they really mean is accept our views or else. But whether it's physical persecution, whether it's political persecution or peer pressure, keep in mind that the goal is very simple and their goal really is very clear and that is to silence Christians, to have them be quiet about what they believe. And that's what the apostles um, were under attack for. They were speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. The authorities came against them and they said, no longer speak in this name. And they said, sorry, we must obey God rather than men. It didn't work. Satan doesn't give up. He had a second strategy that he employed against the church. And we saw that a couple weeks ago. And that was moral corruption. If Satan can't get the church to be quiet, then he will try to discredit the church through hypocrisy. Um, Satan would love for those outside the church to say, you know what, the church is just full of hypocrites. And people will always say that. We might as well understand that right up front. Whether or not we're hypocrites, they're going to call us hypocrites. Uh, but let's not give them ammunition. Let's not give them a reason to call us hypocrites. And you'll recall that Jesus had his strongest denunciation for the Pharisees and scribes. And in Matthew 23, we have what's commonly known as the seven woes. And Jesus begins those seven woes by saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pretend to be more godly, more holy, more righteous than you are. And Jesus blasted them for it. Because hypocrisy will ruin the church. So if Satan can't destroy the church from without, he'll try and destroy the church from within. And we saw that the answer to moral corruption in the church is church discipline. 
We really are our brother's keeper. This doesn't mean that we become nitpickers. This doesn't mean that we point out every little piccadillo that we see in one another's lives and say, well, you shouldn't be doing that and you should be doing the other thing. But when it's clear, when it's obvious, we do have a responsibility to challenge one another and to speak to one another and to call one another on towards repentance. The testimony at the church is at stake, among other things. This morning we're going to look at Satan's third strategy that comes up in the book of Acts. And this strategy I want to refer to as ministerial distraction. Ministerial distraction. John Stott said that this is the most subtle of Satan's strategies and perhaps the most effective of his strategies. And I think that's something to think about. Uh, Think of the liberal churches that we know of. Uh, mainline denominations that at one time were very orthodox, that preached the gospel of Jesus Christ with boldness, were committed to discipling the members within its ranks. And now when you ask those churches what they're committed to, and they'll say, housing the homeless, ending the AIDS epidemic, feeding starving children. And we want to say, Those are great things to be committed to as a church. Those are worthy endeavors. Uh, We would never rebuke you for uh, caring about the homeless and those with AIDS and, and starving children. But, while they focused on those good deeds, they have neglected to preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ, which is man's only hope of salvation. And we have to wonder, how did, how did this come about? Did, did the elders gather together on one Wednesday evening and one of the elders proposed, you know what, I, I think we should stop preaching the Gospel. And the other elders said, well, we need to talk about that. That's, that's pretty serious. Let's talk about this. And after some discussion, they all agreed and said, yeah, let's stop preaching the Gospel. That's not what happened. What happened? I think it's very simple what happened. Someone said, we have some real needs in our community. And as the people of God, we're called to take care of these needs. The Bible's pretty clear that we're to take care of those who are hurting and struggling. And so they did. They started taking care of those who were hurting and struggling. And the shift in the direction of the church gradually gradually went in that direction to the neglect of the Gospel. And the next thing you know, all kinds of good deeds are taking place but they're not preaching the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I submit to you that that was Satan's strategy all along. To just slowly and subtly turn them away from the Gospel and the next thing you know it, 10, 20, 30 years have happened and no longer is the Gospel being preached in a church. It doesn't happen with churches only. It happens with religious institutions, colleges. Harvard was founded for the very purpose of training a literate clergy. That was the purpose. I could tell you about many other colleges who started off as Christian institutions. And how about ministries? YMCA. Young Man's Christian Association. Committed to preaching the Gospel and discipling people. Now it's all about basketball and some other sporting activities. What happened? Again, the shift just slowly focuses. 
Well, Acts chapter 6 shows us how to combat this strategy of Satan. And again, it's subtle, but it works. It has been successful many times, so we need to be on guard against this strategy. Let's see how it's set up. Verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. That's a great... That's a great... Disciples are increasing. People are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The church is growing. The kingdom is advancing. More and more people are worshiping Jesus Christ. It's exciting. But then what happens? A complaint. A complaint. Should I just pause there for a moment? That's all it takes. The church is growing, thriving. Everybody is excited. This is great. And then there's a complaint. So everything was going well. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, let me make a couple observations. First of all, um, there's a legitimate concern that needs to be taken care of here. In James 1.27, we're told that this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. As we've been talking about in Sunday school, we as, as the church have a responsibility to take care of orphans. That's pure religion. That's undefiled religion. That, that pleases God. We have a responsibility to take care of orphans. Other people throw them out. We have a responsibility to go and get them and bring them in to our families. And we have a responsibility to take care of widows for those who are on their own church has responsibility. If the family drops the ball, then the church has to step in and take care of the will. And that's what the church is doing, what God has called them to do. But in this situation, some of the wills were being overlooked. The Hellenist widows. The Hellenists are the Greek-speaking, the Greek-encultured Jews. Their widows were being overlooked, while the Aramaic-speaking Jews and Hebraic uh, Jews, their widows were being taken care of. Now, some have thought that this neglect was deliberate. Uh, the text does not say that. It is a possibility, but the text doesn't say that. Perhaps they were just overlooked. But this started a little conflict in the church between two different cultures in the church, and they thought maybe it was deliberate, and a clash was taking place in the church. And this is the problem before the elders. They have to take care of this problem. Now, let me point out that it shouldn't have been brought to the apostles' attention through a complaint. Uh, the Greek word here is very graphic for complaint. It means complaint expressed in murmuring. Murmur, 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 murmur. One of those interesting words, anomatopoeia, uh, where its sound is its meaning. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Kind of like buzz, hiss. One of those words. So you can, you can just sense it. There's this murmuring, this grumbling taking place in the community. It's similar to the Israelites grumbling before Moses. And we should point out that grumbling and complaining is completely inappropriate for God's people. Philippians 2.14, we're told to do everything without complaining. Now, as I said, this is a legitimate concern. But the believers didn't have to complain about it. They could have come respectfully before the elders and said, we have a concern in the body of Christ. But instead, it was a complaint and it started to affect the whole community and it spread like wildfire. 
wildfire probably. Now, few things will discourage and drain a leader like complaining. I mean, it just sucks the energy out of you, doesn't it? Just complaining. But the apostles, because they are the leaders, have to deal with it. They have to step forward. They have to offer a solution. Because as I said, this is a legitimate concern. The church has a responsibility to take care of widows like they're doing. So they have to step forward, offer a solution. Sometimes leaders have to say no to proposed solutions. Look at verse 2. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now it seems, I could be wrong, but it seems that some in the body of Christ were coming to the apostles and they were saying, you know what, the Hellenist widows are being overlooked. If you would distribute the food, then we know that everybody would be taken care of. Would you, twelve apostles, take care of this situation for us? And the twelve apostles said, no. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Now, that was probably hard for them to say. It's often hard to say no in ministry. As a leader, you want to take care of things. Often you want to jump in there. And sometimes you think, okay, if it's going to get done right, i got to do it. And you jump in there as the leader. And perhaps the apostles didn't want to give the impression, hey, we do the preaching, the teaching around here. We don't serve tables. Perhaps they didn't want to give the impression that it was beneath their dignity to take care of the widows. But they realized right away, if we devote ourselves to this, the job is so big, we will neglect the Word of God. They understood that what was at stake was their calling. Their calling. They were called to pastoral ministry. And the call to pastoral ministry is a call mainly to prayer and the preaching of the Word. Those are the priorities of pastoral ministry. Prayer and the Word of God. Should I say it again? Prayer and the Word of God. But as in any time, uh, pastors can get distracted because there's counseling that needs to be done. There's administration that needs to be done. There's a deck that needs to be built. There's grass that needs to be mowed. There's light bulbs that need to be changed. There's I could go on and on, but I think you get the picture, right? So pastors, those who are called to preach and teach, need to be very clear about what God has called them to do. And sometimes you have to say no. I recall a story I heard a while back of a church. They, they hired a new pastor and uh, the grass was starting to get long. And the pastor mentioned to the elders that the grass is getting long. And he said, we need to have somebody take care of this. And the elders said, well, the previous pastor, he, he used to cut the grass. And the new pastor said, well, he's not here anymore. And he doesn't want to cut it. <laughs> but sometimes you got to be bold. you, you got to say, no, I, I got my priorities. And you got to keep them straight. So what's the solution to ministerial distraction. Specifically, in this passage right here, it's the diaconate. Everybody know that term? The diaconate. The deacons. This is the establishment of the office of deacons right here. So the answer is, well, let's have godly men be raised up and they can take care of this responsibility right over here 
so that the widows are well taken care of and then we can continue right on preaching the Word of God. And that's so important. But I think there's a broader application here as well. It's not that just that we need to have elders and we need to have the deacons in the church, but also I think we need to understand the priesthood of all believers. Are you familiar with that term from Martin Luther? The priesthood of all believers. Put simply, what that Reformed doctrine means is that all believers are called to serve in the body of Christ. So earlier I talked about pastoral ministry and the call to pastoral ministry is a call to preach and teach. But notice I didn't say the call to the ministry. I think we have to be very careful. Sometimes we talk about pastors and missionaries as though they're called to the ministry. Well, what about everybody else in the body? They're not called to the ministry? So I was very clear in what I said. There's a call to the pastoral ministry, but every single believer is called to ministry. And don't let that scare you because God has equipped you with at least one spiritual gift or not more to do the work of ministry. And don't despair because He's also indwelt you with the Holy Spirit to empower you to use your gifts and abilities to do the work of ministry. So the answer to ministerial distraction is the diaconate and the priesthood of all believers is everybody coming together in the body of Christ using their gifts. And this is very important. In my last class, one of my professors said to us, uh, almost all pastors in the class, I believe we were, and he said, be careful not to place too much responsibility on the elders. Remember, they have full-time jobs. They have families. They can only do so much. What you need to do is place more responsibility on the congregation at large. And I grabbed my pen and I said, ooh, that's good. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to share that much. <laughs> so here I am sharing it with you. We, we're all in this together. We all have to use our gifts so that the ministry can go forth. Look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. You see the joint effort between the congregation and the apostles? The apostles said, you pick out godly men to take care of this responsibility and then you bring them to us. And I think implied is that if we find them worthy and capable, then we will appoint them to this office. And later in verse 6, we see the apostles praying for them, laying their hands on them as a way of ordaining them to the ministry, if you will. So the church is to pick out people to take care of it. And the apostles will be a part of that process as well, putting them in place, giving them authority to do that. And we should also point out very clearly that really what's needed above all things for ministry is character. Notice, whom should they choose? Men who have good repute, have a good reputation, full of the Spirit, wisdom. And if you read through the pastoral epistles, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus. They're called the pastoral epistles because they deal with pastoral issues. But in those epistles, we have the qualifications of the elders. We have the qualification of the deacons. And they're almost identical except for one thing. Elders are to be able to teach and refute doctrine. 
Otherwise, you're basically identical in all the qualifications mainly have to do with character. That's what's needed for the ministry. Character. So they're told, pick out men who have character and they can take care of this responsibility. And then verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. There it is again. Earlier they said, we cannot neglect preaching the Word of God. And now they add to that responsibility prayer. Making it very clear, we cannot neglect prayer and the ministry of the Word. The apostles understood their calling. They understood their priorities. And they would not allow themselves to be distracted. They had to keep their focus clear. They had to keep their schedule clear for this hard work. And it really is. I know that sounds self-serving, but it really is hard work. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Prayer is hard work. Have any of you found that to be the case? Am I the only one? How many of you think prayer is real hard work? Yeah. I find it easier to run three miles than to pray. I really, I really do. It, it is hard work. It, it doesn't seem that hard. You think, well, how, how hard can it be? You, just, you get down on your knees. Maybe you can even lean on a chair and, and spend time in prayer to God. How hard can that be? But you know it is grueling. Agonizing. And there's a reason why Paul talked about wrestling in prayer. So some of you in this congregation probably wrestled in your past, maybe in grade school or high school. Wrestling is easier than prayer. Prayer is harder wrestling. And it doesn't seem like it, but it is. And you know, those of you who have, you know it, it's hard work. If you try to explain it to others, you, you can't explain it. It's hard to explain. And that's because the battle is spiritual and you can't see it, but you can feel it. Oh, can you feel it? You pray for two minutes and already you're exhausted. It's hard work. But it's necessary work. Preaching and teaching. Hard work. Hard work. Matt's to be applauded for teaching Sunday school. Really is. We need more teachers. Why don't we have more teachers? Why don't I just ask that question? It's being honest this morning. Why don't we have more teachers? Why aren't more, more men, I'll be real specific, why aren't more men stepping forward to, I'll teach Sunday school, uh, I'll teach a small group. You know why? Because hard work. Hard work. It really is. And again, how hard can it be? You, know, you sit down at a desk, comfy chair, you know, open up some books, it's hard work. It's hard work. And not everyone's called to do it. I'm not asking everybody to do it. That's not everybody's calling. But it's hard work and we have to stay on task. And the apostles, we have to stay on task. And again, let's ask this question. What happens when the Word of God is neglected? Churches get off course. Churches get off course. They're open to all kinds of false doctrine. They have no answers to what's going on in the culture. They have no good news to offer people who are in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So easy to get off course. So important to be committed to the Word of God and prayer. And I say this for your benefit as well. 
You want to pick a church. I really believe number one thing you want in a church, you want to look at what is the teaching of that church. First thing you should do if you're considering a church is look at its doctrinal statement. Ask some doctrinal questions. Because that is going to transform your life. It really will. And I wish we could understand that more. Theology really does come out your fingertips. Your theology will roll off your tongue. Your theology will affect how you raise your kids. Your theology will affect every single aspect of your life. I really mean that. It's a slow process, but it gradually changes you. Some of you would probably like to come to church today and say, Pastor, just, just give us three things to change. I need three things to change my life so I can go out of here. It's not that easy. I wish it were that easy. Yeah, just do these three things right here and everything will be hunky-dory. It's not that easy. What has to happen is week in and week out, we need to open up God's Word. We need to look at what God has to say. We need to look at God's instruction. And we need to get the mind of Christ. And when we have the mind of Christ, then we will live like Jesus Christ. But i got news for you. You don't get the mind of Jesus Christ overnight. You get the mind of Jesus Christ day in, day out, week in, week out by opening up His Word, asking God to make His mind known, to give us wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And then gradually what happens is your life changes and then you look back and you say, I'm not the same man I was three years ago. You know, I, I view things totally different in this area of my life because three years ago I started to look at things through the sovereignty of God and now it's affected how I look at life and it's brought a peace into my life like I never had before. And it, there's a confidence in my life that I never had before. And, and it didn't come through three steps. It came from an understanding of the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is in control, that Jesus Christ is on His throne, that He rules and reigns the nations. And you realize, wow, this, this has affected my, my whole outlook, my whole attitude. The Word of God, prayer, so important. I find it fascinating in verse 5 that says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they choose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then six other men. But isn't that interesting? Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. How did they know Stephen was full of faith in the Holy Spirit? They could see it. They could see it. Hey, Stephen, he'd be great. Look at him. He's full of faith in the Holy Spirit. How do you know that? Oh, just watch how he lives his life. It's obvious that he is trusting God, that he has strength that only God can provide. He would be great for this. As a matter of fact, he was so great that he went on to preach and teach and had the privilege of becoming a martyr for Jesus Christ. We've talked about before. He was given that high honor. He was worthy not only to suffer for the name, but to suffer giving his life for the name of Jesus Christ. But he started as a deacon. And then just serve more and more in ministry. It's also fascinating that all seven of these men have Greek names. In other words, they were Hellenist men. I think that probably was just uh, wisdom on part of the congregation. Uh, if you're worried about the Hellenists being overlooked, let's pick Hellenist men who will be concerned about them. Uh, then if they're overlooked, there won't be any conflict with the Jews, with the Hebraic Jews over here. So then if it happens again, we won't have this huge conflict in the church. So I think there was just some common sense and some wisdom taking place. 
Well, verse 6 says, they set before the, the apostles these men. They prayed, laid their hands on them, uh, ordaining them to this office, giving their approval, uh, showing that these men have their authority uh, to carry out this work of the diaconate. And then, what do we read in verse 7? And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why does Luke include that passage right there? Satan's coming at the church once again. The apostles are responding with wisdom and understanding. The church is accepting that. The church is responding And as a result of deacons being raised up, of other people in the body of Christ using their gifts, the apostles didn't have to do everything. They could stay on track with what God had called them to do. And as a result of more people using their gifts in the body of Christ, the Gospel is going forth. People are being discipled. And what we could call mercy ministry is being taken care of. Those who are truly in need in in the church are still being taken care of. So the church is a testimony to the community that we take care of those in our midst and the Gospel is going forth. And Luke wants us to know the Word of God continued to increase. Now stop right there. Notice what he says and what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and Jesus Christ continued to build His church. He did. He did. I'm not saying He didn't. He did. But how did He build His church? The Word of God continued to increase. That's how the church of Jesus Christ is built up as a top priority. The Word must go forth. And this is very important. The book of Acts basically is the church being built because the Word of God is going forth. And we see this again and again. Let me just point out a couple of passages so that you can see this theme. Acts 12.12 That's what I wrote down, but I know that's the wrong verse. (laughs) Acts 12.24 I knew it wasn't in the right spot. The verse is very simple. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. That's how Luke describes the Great Commission going forth. That's how he describes the church being built up. That's how he describes the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ as it dethrones the kingdom of man. That's how he describes it. The Word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 19.20 So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. I love that. The Word of God prevailed mightily. This is the church militant bringing the Word of God with it. And when the book of Acts closes, what do we read in the last two verses of the book of Acts? He, talking about Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Close the books. That's where it ends. The Word of God is continuing to go forth because Paul is preaching and teaching the Kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's doing this with boldness, without hindrance. 
And now we go to Acts 29. So open up your Bibles to Acts 29. And you say, where is Acts 29? And I say, we are Acts 29. We are Acts 29. We need to continue to preach and teach the Word of God, to pray, to take care of orphans and widows and the homeless and on and on and on by using the gifts that God has given us so that we can be successful. The Word of God goes forth and then what else happens according to verse 7? The number of disciples multiplies greatly in Jerusalem. So the disciples are multiplying. And not only that, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. In our culture, that would that'd be like saying, and even the Muslims were confessing Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It was awesome. Even the Muslims were converted. Lucas, even the priests who at first were opposing the faith were converted. It's saying, this is, this is wonderful. When everybody does their part, when, we're, when we don't get off track, the Word goes forth. The disciples multiply. And you never know who may come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're to be about. So here's my closing challenge for you. If widows need to be visited, perhaps you could turn the key in your car and go for a little ride. If somebody needs a meal, perhaps you could bake or cook some extra things in your kitchen and deliver them. Uh, if someone needs to host a Sunday school class or a small group, perhaps you could say, you know, I, I could help with that. Um, I don't really think I'm capable of teaching it, but I'd be happy to bring refreshments. Um, I'd be happy to prepare anything else you need prepared. So often we're, we're looking to others to do the work of ministry. And I also made this observation. This is just a pastoral observation that I've made from years of ministry now. Very few people leave the church when they're involved in ministry. Because you know what? God has placed gifts within us and His Spirit to do the work of ministry. And when we're about that, there's a satisfaction that takes place. Now, sometimes we're in the wrong area. We're, we're serving over here and we'd really be more satisfied over here. And that, that's okay. But sometimes we're, we're discontent because we're wanting to be served rather than to serve. And we should, we should look for places to serve. We should be open. Where, where can I use my gifts? Where, where can I serve? How can I do my part to build up the body of Christ? And if we would each do that in cooperation, there's no telling what the church could do. There's no telling how the Word could go forth and how the disciples could multiply. Let's close in prayer.